0: Hey, this is Joe Kelly, a uh, writer of Spider-Man Deadpool, and you're listening to Amazing Spider
1: Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon. They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider. The amazing spider. Hello and welcome to The Amazing Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Thanks for joining me for a special episode of the show. This time it's another Spider Talk and their Amazing Friends episode. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between a fan and creator as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, for this episode, I'm joined by none other than Mark Guggenheim, who was a prominent writer as part of the initial Brand New Day Brain Trust that ensured that a new Spider-Man book came out three times a month. I know Mark and I promised that this week's episode would be a discussion of Amazing Spider-Man number 14, but I was called to travel out of town to Texas, and so we were unable to record. That said, this episode contains a fascinating peek behind the scenes of one of the most exciting and controversial periods of Amazing Spider-Man, and whether or not you've read Brand New Day, you'll find something to love about this interview. Well, enough delaying. Travel with me to the amazing Burbank Studios in Los Angeles, home of the production offices for Arrow and Legend of Tomorrow, to talk to none other than writer Mark Guggenheim. And his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. Hi, everybody. Dan Gavostin here for Amazing Spider Talk, and I've got a very special guest with me today on the show. Uh, Today's guest has worked as a notable screenwriter, television producer, comic book writer, and novelist on some of your favorite properties, including Law & Order, CSI Miami, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, Green Lantern, Aquaman, The Flash, and Young X-Men. He shares a name with a popular art museum in New York City, and for our purposes, he was part of the Spider-Man Brain Trust that brought Brand New Day to life. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Talk, Mark Guggenheim.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: It's great to have you here. So, you know, before we get into discussing all the craziness of tackling Brand New Day and and, and all the stuff you did on on Amazing Spider-Talk, you know, you've been attached to so many popular comic series, whether it be for television, film, or even comics, how did you first discover superheroes as a child?
0: Gosh, uh, great question. I'm, oh, I'm very, very lucky uh, in, in the fact that I get to work in my, you know, I, I get to work in an area that I just have loved with, literally, loved literally since day one. And, you know, when I say day one, I'm I'm being very specific in the sense that one of my earliest memories, like earliest childhood memories is being on the floor of my room, flipping through a Superman comic. And my mother came in to my room and was like shocked because she's like, I didn't know you could read. And because I couldn't at the time. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm just looking at the, at the pictures. I don't even remember how I got the comic. I don't know where it came from, but, um, I I've always loved, Superheroes and comic books, and um, it's it's something that has really um, you know followed me my entire life.
1: That's awesome. So uh, you know we're here to talk about your work on Spider Man. Can you tell me about yeah. your history with the character? How did you discover Spider Man?
0: I actually discovered Spider Man through the Electra Company, which was this children's television workshop show. It, it was it was basically a show that. If you aged out of Sesame Street, this was the show you were supposed to watch, so it was educational, and they had a live action Spider man on and they would do like a little spider man segment every um you know uh, every episode and and this this is sort of like you know when I was a kid, like before I was ten um I was pure d c like only d c so this was my only exposure to Marvel was was through the Electric Company and, and Spider Man and when I was when I was really really young and I was I was just starting to watch Electric Company Spider Man terrified me I was I was scared of Spider Man like like Spider Man would wig me out as a kid
1: he was kind of a weird guy he didn't talk he, he, he kind of didn't talk
0: around. he spoke in these word balloons that they would sort of superimpose on the screen and I remember this this one. Episode or one one clip where he he went up against this guy who like gave you measles and I just remember being completely freaked out about it and it's quite possible that I was I was actually too young to really watch Electric Company because when I sort of do the the math on it my my f- reaction was so severe that I would I would like to think that uh, it was because I was really really young.
1: Do you remember the Spider-Man comic which was like the first one you picked up? It, Yeah,
0: actually, um, my exposure to the Spider-Man comics was through uh, the old, there's a publisher named Pocket Books, uh, and they published little trade paperbacks, I I mean little like paperback-sized trade paperbacks, um, of the original Lee Ditko Spider-Man, and I, I ate them up. They did three of them, and I was like I just would pour through them voraciously reading them. I still have my copies, um, you know, the binding all cracked and everything. Um, and I was just uh, such a huge fan of, of those of those early issues, and that that was very formative for me.
1: Do those remain your like favorite era of the character? That's a great question. Yeah, I
0: think probably. Um, there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of eras that I I really do love. Um, but in terms of, you know. Uh, a, a seminal, like, really grab me by my throat. Uh, it's kind of hard to top those early Lee and Ditko. In part, I, I think it's because it's always very hard to top your first exposure to anything. Yeah. Um, you know, every, you know, they say that every comic book is someone's first. And the comic that, you know, sort of grabbed you and said, you know, this character or this concept or these, this team um, really speaks to you it's hard to top that in in one's estimation though though it does happen
1: so you got into working at marvel through an internship is that correct
0: yeah um i uh, interned for marvel uh after th- my the summer after my sophomore year of college uh and I, I was really really lucky i had heard about the internship program and i knew that they did summer interns and um my university um basically said yeah we'll recognize these credits if marvel says yes and marvel said we will say yes if your university says yes Uh, and i very quickly realized that i was in a total catch 22 because marvel was waiting on the university and the university was waiting on marvel and i was like oh my god my dream of working for marvel for the summer is going to completely go away due to red tape uh until i just realized oh wait a minute I could lie. I'll just tell Marvel that the university said it was okay, and I'll tell the university that Marvel said it was okay, and And it all worked out exactly. And (laughs) yeah, except it was the career of me becoming an attorney. I think um, because that's that's what I did before I started writing professionally. Um, But I was I was really lucky. I I interned at Marvel uh, that summer. It was it was so much fun. I mean, I I interned for uh, Terry Kavanaugh um, and Kelly Carvisi, and they were doing. John Burns Namer, Marvel Comics presents, including at the time the Barry Windsor Smith Weapon X run. Um, they were doing Excalibur, uh, and it, because it was over the summer, it was it was twice it was twice being published twice monthly. Um, they did you know really fun books. And I that was that was like I think on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I interned for Steve Saffel uh, and Dana Morshed in the uh, promotions department. So I really got a chance to learn both the editorial side of the business and the promotion side of the business and,
1: uh, incredible fun. What a great time to be in those offices. Oh,
0: it was so exciting. I mean, it was, it really, really was like, I mean, this was just like, this was the summer I think that. Uh, Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man came out. Yeah. Um, this was, you know, obviously when when Byrne was doing Namor, Barry Windsor-Smith doing Weapon X. Um, it was it was the summer. I think that Extinction Agenda was coming out or about to come out. Um, I mean, really, you know, incredibly. I'm just showing my age now, really, but uh, in, incredibly seminal uh, and exciting books. Um, and it was also just an exciting time for comics because this was this was right before the early '90s, where the spec the speculator boom was like it, at this point was sort of helping comics, not hurting comics. So uh, you know, I mean, like X Men number one was coming out, uh, the adjectiveless X Men. Um, actually, I think. I think that summer it hadn't come out yet. Marvel was just planning it. As I remember being in the offices and Marvel, you know, Spider-Man, Adjectiveless Spider-Man had just come out and um, I heard about this and I joked that, oh, it should be Adjectiveless X-Men, and they're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. We're doing Adjectiveless X-Men. <laughs> I'm like, I was kidding. Um, I, by the way, just to be very clear, I didn't suggest it. They were already doing it. Um, but uh, it, That's it,
1: nice of you to not take credit.
0: Uh, I just, you know, hopefully people will listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, I don't <laughs> want them to think I'm taking credit for, yeah, Guggenheim said he named uh, the adjectiveless X-Men series. No, I didn't. Um, but it was a really exciting time. Really, really exciting. Cause this was like before the, obviously before the image departure, um, and, uh, before the bubble burst on the speculative market.
1: So, speaking of an exciting time to get in on, on something, let's talk about your time with the brain trust and, and the brand new day. Good segue. So, uh, our, our, thank you. Our listeners uh, you know, uh, are familiar with my co host Mark and I. We really enjoy that, that period, but they might not be so familiar with what this brain trust was. So, you can, can you tell us briefly what the idea behind the brain trust was? Well, there's a few things.
0: Um basically joe straczynski was coming off his his uh run on amazing spider-man and at the time uh marvel published um i want to say it was three different uh spider-man books uh they published you know amazing spider-man um adjectiveless spider-man or actually actually it had been retitled peter parker spider-man and um friendly neighborhood thank you friendly neighborhood and i was like peter david's book which one was peter david's book um sorry, Peter, um, and they had had come to a, a few very important decisions. One was that they were going to cancel the remaining, the other two non-amazing books, um, still very good books, um, and publish amazing three times a month. Uh, the other thing that they were going to do was going to basically Retcon away or eliminate uh, Peter Parker's marriage to Mary Jane. Um, so, but there was both a, I guess, a commercial decision and a creative decision. And the idea was we were going to have, um, you know, there was going to be this this crossover among the various different Spider titles that was going to be called One More Day that would take care of the creative retcon, and that would tee up brand new day which would be a new run with a group of writers and a group of artists because it would be basically one book being published three times a month um and the thinking was like let's assemble you know marvel's like let's assemble basically a writing staff like you would on a tv show um and uh, Steve Wacker was the editor, uh, with Tom Brevoort supervising, and um, it was it was going to be, or, and I think it, it turned out to be like a real sort of uh, back to the basics kind of approach for Spider-Man. Um, it, it wasn't just. Uh, Peter not being married to Mary Jane. It was it was bringing back the friendship with Harry Osborn, um, making you know uh, J. Jonah Jameson and the Daily Bugle and Peter's job at the da- at the Bugle uh, a more prominent part of the book. Um, you know, really trying to you know get back to the core of of those early Lee Ditko, uh, Ramita spider-man issues
1: so how did you find yourself on this
0: team of of uh writers um i had been writing for marvel i want to say um it's like two to three years uh at that point and um I had done uh, I had done a Punisher story that at the time had not, had not been published actually saw publication last year finally, um, and then from the Punisher story I worked on Wolverine did a couple of arcs on Wolverine uh, I had been writing Blade um, and Marvel offered me an exclusive contract uh, and the you know basically was like. Come be exclusive, and you can you can write Spider Man, uh, and they 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 only the thing is they they only told me, and I think all the rest of the brain trust. Um, and at some point towards the end of the run, we all sort of collectively realized that brain trust sounded really uh, pretentious, so we we just started calling ourselves webheads in the in the titles uh, in the credits. Um, but anyway, I, I don't think any of us knew about the uh, undoing of the marriage. Mm. Um, and one of my memories was we, we all met for our first summit in New York because, you know, we all lived around the country. Um, you know, we we need to all be in the same room if we were going to act as a writing staff. So I remember us meeting with Joe Casada and Tom and Steve, all of us together in one room for the first time. And that's when they pitched us one more day. Um, so we'd all signed on not knowing uh, the the buzz saw that we were stepping into, um, but we were you know, and I think we all heard the pitch, and you know, without you know, uh, with without you know, and everyone has a different opinion, without sort of commenting on. Whether or not people thought it was a good idea or not, because I know that's like a controversial topic, uh, I think we all recognize that um, there would be some strong opinions outside of the room uh, on the part of the fans uh, that uh, that we would be sort of inheriting, um, which we all thought would be interesting. I, I think, truth be told, um, it really speaks to the great love all of us had for the character that even with a you know, a public relations challenge, uh, we were, we were more than happy to try to overcome that, uh, in order to work on Spider-Man.
1: I was going to ask you if you had hesitation about not only following up JMS and one more day, you know, coming on the book. Cause I mean, his run was Eisner winning, you know?
0: I, well, I mean, I, I hold Joe in incredibly high regard. I, I was and remain a huge Babylon five fan and, and really love his comic book work. So, um, I didn't know, and the rest of the brain trust didn't know that we were following up one more day because they were pitching us one more day. But uh, I d- obviously did know um, that we were following in the footsteps of, of Joe, and, and that alone was, was very, um, you know, uh, was really, uh, you know, it, it, it was a little frightening. Um, you know, again, it, it really comes down to if someone offers you the opportunity to write Spider-Man, you take the off- opportunity to write Spider-Man. Um, and, and you you get over any sort of feelings of inadequacy or insecurity. Um, actually, you don't get over them. You really just push them aside, and you, you stick them in the drawer for a little bit uh, so that you can actually take the gig.
1: Feelings of inadequacy and insecurity are probably part and parcel of being a writer of Spider-Man.
0: I think it's part and parcel of being a writer.
1: It's probably <laughs> you know? true, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so speaking about like the whole one more day thing, can you, can you speak to, I guess... Uh, not how you dealt with it, but, like, what that meant to you and your team, you know, moving forward. Because the fan backlash was pretty, you know, I, I can't think of a larger back, back larger backlash in comics, you know, uh, at least modern day uh, comics than, than that change. And it, and it just I loomed over your stories, but... What, was there a mindset for you guys m- moving past it?
0: I, yeah, I think I think we all collectively felt, um, and we, we may even have discussed the fact that okay, well, well, this is this is happening, um, and we're we're just going to write as in as much of a vacuum as we can. We're we're not going to you know write to. Um, you know, to to apologize for one more day, we're not going to write to justify one more day. We're we're really just going to take uh, as, as much ownership um, and creative uh, authority as possible, and and write the best version of Spider Man we possibly can. I I think, you know, I, I again I, I think the thing that we all had in common was you know, whether you agree with the marriage or not agree with the marriage or anything, it, it, the I, the opportunity to sort of reboot Spider-Man with a marriage or without a marriage, to, the opportunity to sort of come in and really sort of, you know, take a very back-to-the-basics, very John Burnesque, quite frankly, approach to this character um, was very appealing uh, to us. Um, that's, that's a, it's a big challenge, but it also... Um, it was It was exciting. It was an exciting challenge for all of us. It was like we'd get in the room and we we would sort of you know talk about um, you know uh, talk opportunities um you know the only time like sort of thinking about the internet reaction um uh, you know and and the you know the potential backlash um i guess you know I, I guess we didn't really think about it as backlash. We thought about it as you know, okay, there's going to be an interesting opportunity here. Like, like we recognize that the first time Mary Jane appears in the comic again, that's going to be a cool moment. Like, how do we, how do we make that moment everything it can be? Um, You know, uh, you know, Dan had had the, I believe it was Dan's idea. Dan had the idea to have this character named Jackpot, who's a redhead and you're wondering, is she Mary Jane or not? Like just having fun, with the new the new status quo create a lot of in, inherent mystery to it because, you know, it, it wasn't incredibly clear after one more day what other repercussions there had been apart from everyone just knew, okay, they're no longer married, but you don't know you know, how Mary Jane is going to come back on the scene. You don't know what she's been doing while she was, you know, not in the book. Um, You know, Peter's whole social life, you know, is different. He's no longer living with a supermodel. Um, And that's sort of the other thing that I I don't think uh, people really, um, you know, thought enough about. But we spoke a lot about it, uh, which is the idea that it's not just ending the marriage. It's ending like basically at Peter's access to an entire lifestyle, um, that was very, uh, different from the early Lee and Ditko Spider-Man days. I mean, the idea of Peter having to scrounge for money, um, you know, Peter having to work at the Daily Bugle to make ends meet, um, that, that was something that, you know, again, for better or for worse, was not a story or a storyline or an area that, you got from the marriage to Mary Jane. You just couldn't do
1: it. Yeah. So I'm curious about, like, crafting the world of Spider-Man when you're given such a, not a blank slate, but you're really given a lot of freedom. Whether, I guess I'm curious about a number of different things, namely, what were you told, like, by editorial was the goal? Like, what were things that you were allowed to do and weren't allowed to do? And then what ideas did you have that, you you were embraced and what were ideas that were were turned down? Uh,
0: Oh, great, great questions. Um, Well, well, first of all, um, Tom Brevoort had written up a really terrific manifesto um, I think it was actually called the Spider Manifesto, um, that that has since been republished. You know, you can find in the trades, um, and and perhaps even in a couple of floppies. Um, uh, you know, that I think really set out a wonderful mission statement for Brand New Day, and we all sort of took that and ran with it. We re, we really embraced it, and um, what was great about the early summits was it was it was just you know. Uh, Us in a room with editorial and everyone's pitching out different ideas and we're going down different roads. Um, We didn't have a lot of, we didn't set a lot of rules for ourselves. Um, Again, I think I do remember there was a certain like, let's wait X amount of time before seeing Mary Jane again. Um, There, there was also like, let's wait X amount of time to the point of like, we don't even have any early plans of, uh bringing back uh you know uh, bringing back osborne and the green and the green goblin um that sort of you know that sort of thing like what what are the things that we don't want to touch not because we can't but because it's it's too quick it's too soon you know you don't want to like waste green goblin returning for example um but as you saw like you know we didn't have Mary Jane, but we had Jackpot. We, did, we didn't have Green Goblin, but we had Menace. Um, we talked a lot about, like, you know, Menace and Menace's identity and, um, you know, the, the fun of, of, you know, introducing a goblin character and playing a whodunit uh, element with them. Um, we played, you know, we played around with a lot of different things. It was, it was, I mean, a very, very, very deep bench. Um, and I, I do not include myself in this, but you know, every, you know, Zeb Wells, Bob Gale, um, you know Dan and myself, and then later on we brought on you know uh, Dennis Hopeless and uh, you know and and Joe Kelly and Mark Wade. You know that Mark Wade guy, he's going places. Um, you know, very smart guy. Um, you know, that's an incredibly deep bench and a lot of talent and just a lot of great ideas. Dan Slot alone, by the way, is is just I've never worked with any writer who's such an idea machine. I mean, and and good ideas. I mean, is incredibly prolific in in terms of ideas. And, um, and they're all ideas born out of a love of the comic books. Um, and we all just rift on, you know, on, Oh, we can do this and we can do that. And th- when you're doing three books a month, it-, it actually creates a lot of real story, real estate that you can, you can, uh, you-, you feel like you're, you don't have to rush anything.
1: So, you know, as a spider fan, these summits just sound like, A dream place to be, just people nerding out and pitching ideas. Um, But I'm—I've always been curious. You know, when we talked to Joe Kelly on our show. He mentioned some of the stories that he ended up writing, like the Rhino story was originally a Zeb Wells story. It was
0: originally a Mark Guggenheim story,
1: or, or it was a your story. Yeah, um, which that's one of my favorite stories in the history of Spider-Man.
0: Huh. He, by the way, he did a much better job writing it than I would have.
1: Well, either way, I'm curious about you know how these summits like worked functionally. You throw out ideas, but then ha- who who's doing the assigning? Yeah, I'm sure that's whacker, but how are people assigned stories, and how did that all shape together? It- changed
0: uh it, it it changed a lot i mean we never really had one set methodology i think you know the we recognize that you know the first four arcs written by the first four writers like th- that would be its own sort of chapter you know um and and very much chapter designed to okay you know, like Dan had, Dan did the first arc and he had certain things that he had to establish. I did the second arc and there were certain things that I had to establish. Um, You know, same with Zeb, same with Bob. because there, in those first four arcs, we were we knew we were crafting basically not a whole new world, but certainly a new status quo. Um, and we had from that first summit, we had all these characters that we knew we wanted to introduce. Um, you know, we knew we wanted to introduce menace. We knew we wanted to introduce jackpot. Um, and we, you know, we we knew that there were various different you know supporting characters that we wanted to either introduce or reintroduce um, or reestablish and it was uh you know it, it it was sort of like okay well we know we know the order it's going we know it's going to be you know Dan then me then Zeb then Bob i think that's pretty much how the order went um and then we did our second summit and it was a different set of, of issues. And, uh, because, okay, we've got the toolbox set up. We've got the toy chest set up. Um, now, now what stories are we going to tell? Um, and the way things got assigned were, were generally speaking, part of it was logistics. Part of it was like people's schedules. Uh, part of it was, you know, if it's a story that, you know, Dan particularly gravitated towards, you know, Dan would write it. If it was a story that I particularly gravitated towards, I would write it. Sometimes it was, you know, Dan pitched something. So of course Dan's going to write it. Um, you know, Dan has, you know, and, and he's proven this, um, has enough ideas to literally be a one man, you know, Spider-Man brain trust. And you can publish as many times a month as you'd like. And, and he'll be able to, to keep up. Cause he just has that many ideas, um, you know, uh, and and then, you know, Tom and Steve would sort of, you know, work out, you know, it's not even just working out the ass- arcs and the assignments, also the length of the arcs, um, and working out who's going to draw them, and that's got to you know, factor. And there's a lot of, there was, there was a lot of higher mathematics. And I, I give a lot of credit to Steve Wacker, who he, he had just come from DC. This was his first Marvel gig. And he had just not just come off of DC, but come off of 52, which was DC's weekly book, um, which is its own logistical nightmare. So, so was, in many ways, Steve was the only editor really qualified to do this kind of job. Because the amount of organization um, and and logistics and scheduling that that doing a three times a month book entailed. I mean, this was really was a, a first. Also, I don't. I think. Yeah. You know, it's become maybe three times a month is a little rare, but certainly twice a month, double shipping has become very commonplace. You know, DC's now doing it across their line. Marvel's been doing it for a really long time. Um, you know, but at the time, this was this was brand new and uh, a, a real experiment.
1: I, I, there was no time I was more excited to be picking up a Spider-Man comic because if I wasn't digging one story, the next story was certainly yeah. going to be something that I really dug. Um, I'm curious. Do, do you think that this this kind of TV writing mentality is something that should really be ad- adopted by, by these comics companies? I mean, especially as we move into this kind of like seasonal model as everybody reboots every year or two. Yeah. You know, I mean – I'm
0: probably showing my age. I, I I don't I don't love it. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't do it across the board. Like I I don't think I would. Um, you know I, I think I love the idea of the creator-driven model too much to say like oh yes every every line should be like this um or or every book in in someone's line should be like this um that said it it was a fun thing to do for a nice chunk of time um and different books you know may benefit from this kind of approach um but i i guess i would i would i would miss that singular voice you get um in comics which which comics can do the tv can't really um you know, uh, I would miss that if it was in every if it, every single book was published that way, yeah,
1: um, so you know in your first story, which is the first story of brand new day issue five forty six you did a backup where you introduced both Menace and Jackpot. Menace was just like a shadow you know escaping into the background, but you know these are two big characters that both had huge mysteries surrounding them during. I'm i I'm gonna call it the first season of Brand New Day that ended with the tracer killings that you you mm-hmm. wrote. Um, I, I'm curious about uh let's talk tackle jackpot first. You mentioned that it was a Dan Slot idea to kind of trick the uh I guess the readers or fool the readers a little bit. Um and I personally as a reader, or sure a lot of other readers, I always thought that it was something with Mephisto when she whispered to Mephisto mm-hmm. some pact made that she got superpowers. Was that ever an idea that was played with, or was Jackpot always set up to be this kind of, uh, I guess, uh, Mary Jane in appearance only uh, superhero?
0: Uh, it was always Mary Jane in appearance only. I don't think we ever seriously considered giving Mary Jane powers. Um, In large part, it, I think because we felt it would it would change her character too much, Um, you know, and you know, losing the marriage, that that's enough. Well, you know, it, it, you don't need to give her superpowers on top of it. Yeah.
1: Uh, to continue on to that question, you know, uh, there's this whole whisper with Mephisto thing. When you guys came onto the book, was there ever, did they ever tell you what that was or was that to be held back literally until one moment in time i'm i'm going to give
0: an an incredibly unsatisfying answer but it, it 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 is true which is they did tell us i did know what it was i have completely forgotten
1: what it was well it ended up being just like a kind of nothing uh, yeah. I mean, like it was just her saying don't ever come bother peter right yeah and people wanted so much more out of it you know uh and, and so I was always curious if it was just a thing decided during one moment in time or if it was always going to be that.
0: No, there, there was always a there was there was always bear in mind. I, I think, you know, when they when they told us what she whispered to Mephisto, um, it it was this, this is what Joe had planned. Um, it didn't have to necessarily be that. And that's what that's one of the reason why I think what they told us was, look, this is this is what Joe had in mind. Um, but now the book is collectively yours, um, you know, all all ideas are on the table.
1: Hey everybody, Dan here again. This seems like a pretty good place for me to cut in. I just wanted to take a second to tell everybody listening about our Patreon service, also known as the Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Talk Members Club, where each week we give away a ton of free digital comics, do bi-weekly prize raffles for some excellent prizes, and send you a ton of awesome rewards in the mail, like t-shirts, bumper stickers, members-only episodes, and even the opportunity to choose a topic for Mark and I to discuss on the show. You know, putting together an episode of The Amazing Spider-Talk takes a lot of hard work, at least eight hours a week. And while Mark and I are always excited to do it, we need your support to keep it going. Putting together an episode like the one you're listening to now requires even more work. Hours of research, connecting, driving, and planning to put it together. Mark and I might sound like we're industry insiders, but really, we're just two nerds like you who love Spider-Man comics. So why not check out our Patreon page and sign up to be a part of our exclusive club? It's only through your support that we can continue to do the show. Just head on over to superiorspidertalk.com and click on the support button and give it a look. Thanks again to everyone for their incredible support. Now back to my interview with Mark Guggenheim. Um, So, getting to Menace, you know... uh, one of the great things about the brand new day era is that kind of street level threat that I yeah. felt like hadn't been in Spider-Man for perhaps several decades, you know, dealing with clones and who knows what. And I can I can I can't think of an era outside of maybe Ross Andrews pencils where New York played such a huge element. Uh, you know, in the story, and, and that bled into the supporting cast with Vin, who's a police officer, yeah. and Carly Cooper, who is, a, I guess, a um, medical uh, examiner. Um, can you talk about, um, I guess, creating the characters that occupied this New York world, and, yeah. and, and, and I guess Menace being a part of that?
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it, it was a it was a combination of a few things. Um, the first thing was. We, we knew we were introducing jackpot. We knew we were introducing menace. We knew we were introducing these various different characters who the audience would, um, wonder who's behind those masks. And, you know, if you're going to do that, you've you've got to introduce some potential, uh, you have to introduce some potential quote unquote suspects. Um, you know, some have to be red herrings and some have to be legitimate, uh, theories. Um, so w- we knew that we were, you know, going to be expanding the supporting cast, but, uh, the other part of that, the other half of that desire was we wanted to expand the supporting cast. We wanted to get back to those days. You know, you're, you're right that, and I think we felt it too. There was a general, lack of that street level kind of crime in Spider-Man, uh, for a while up until that point. But the other thing that we felt the book had gotten away from was that very rich, very, very, uh, you know, interesting and, and well thought out supporting cast of characters, you know, once Peter and Mary Jane were married, it it sort of became like, you know, they became like, they became like your friends who are, wow, they get married and suddenly they don't have time for their friends. Um, so we, we really, you know, again, if you're gonna, if you're gonna lose the marriage, um, then, you know, reap the benefits of, of giving Peter that, uh, giving Peter back that incredibly, uh, well-rounded and diverse and interesting supporting cast.
1: So one of the most memorable stories from your time on the Spider Books was uh, Amazing Spider-Man five sixty five to five sixty seven, or Craven's first hunt, uh, featuring the debut of Anna Cravenoff, uh, the third Craven the Hunter. Can you speak to the development of this character and returning to the world and characters of Craven's last hunt, which had gone
0: untouched for so long? Yeah, I, it's funny. I'm, i I feel bad. I'm trying to remember what occasion that that storyline. I, I want to say, we were looking, you know, again because we were in this this space of we're not going to bring back, you know, Green Goblin anytime soon. Um, we were looking at all the different members of of Spidey's Rogues, Rogues Gallery, um, and we all, you know, we we all held Craven in in, in very high regard. Um, you know, love, love, love Craven's Last Hunt. Um, at the same time, we didn't want to at the time undo Craven's last hunt. Obviously, that came later. Um, but we loved that character, and we we talked a lot about like, well, how do you how do you get that that kind of character back into you know back into the book um, you know without bringing Craven back to life? And um, I, I forget how the idea of, of Craven's daughter uh, came up. Um, I, I want to say you know, and I could just be like you know, filling in gaps in my memory with, with fiction. But I want to say it was, it was really born out of this notion that the, the Kravinov family, one, one can imagine that they take revenge very, very seriously. Um, and if, you know, it, 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 it's not beyond the pale to say that, that Craven had a daughter, um, and that she would in, inherit his skills, um and and certainly inherit uh his you know uh the, a vengeance for you know what what uh she blamed. you know basically you know craven commit suicide because of the spider um wouldn't one you know want to uh you know avenge their father 's death
1: you had also said in another interview that spider man had been lacking female characters in his rogues gallery and you know, certainly injected a brand new one in, into that, sta- that running stable.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was, that was the other, you know. I mean, certainly, it's funny. I, I don't even think, once we hit upon the idea of uh, the quote-unquote new Craven being, uh, being an offspring of, of the original Craven, I don't think we even thought for a second that it should be a guy. I, I think we, we always felt it should be a daughter for, for precisely that reason.
1: Um, In what will likely be the most remembered story of your run, Amazing Spider-Man 574, which is called Flashbacks, you told one of the most touching stories ever told in a Spider-Man comic, and it wasn't even about Peter Parker as often great Spider-Man comics are. Um, and readers will remember this is- as the issue that saw Flash Thompson returning to Iraq, uh, a very interesting development and making a sacrifice that cost him his legs. And, uh, when I was rereading this issue, I, I remembered the touching letters page in the back that details the story of medic Jeff Gurin. Mm-hmm. I-, I think I'm saying that right. Um, G-U-E-R-I-N. Helped- G-U-E-R-I-N. That's it. Yeah. Uh, who helped inspire the story, uh, so I guess can you tell listeners about Jeff and his contributions to the story? Um
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you. I, I that I think of, of all the comic books I've ever written on that, that is the single issue that I'm the most proud of. Um you know, uh basically the, the what happened was we we had said, I think back in the very first summit uh that um that Flash, you know. Of course, we're going through the entire, you know, supporting cast, and we were trying to figure out what what to do with Flash. Um, and you know, someone had pointed out that you know, Flash is a member. You know, he had joined the army. You know, earlier, um, and we thought, you know what? We, we've got all these different characters. Um, it would be it, it, for a variety of different reasons. It would be advantageous if Flash was off in Iraq. Um, not not to write him out of the book, but really to to acknowledge you know both his history of military service as well as the ongoing war in Iraq. Um, and at some point, uh, you know during during the brand new day era, we were saying like, wow, you know we've we've said in the comics that Flash is off in Iraq. Um, we should do an issue where we see Flash in Iraq and. Um, we were, you know, I remember actually. I was driving, I was driving to work, and it was on a conference call, um, and we were talking about, oh, we should do a flash, you know, centered issue, um, and of course that raises all sorts of questions. Which is, you know, how do you get Spider Man in there? Do you have to get Spider Man in there? What's the story? You know, it
1: was really elegantly done. Thank by you. The way.
0: Thank you. Um, I, I will say that, you know, there's some ideas that just sort of come to you full blown, and that that whole issue. Uh, from the, the flashbacks to tie in Spider-Man, the, the idea that Spider-Man is the source of Flash's courage, um, the, the, even the ending with, you know, his, his losing his legs, it, it all just came right out, um, and, um, even, even the legs part, which I, as I was pitching, because the legs thing sort of came to me as I was pitching and I remember going like, oh, they well, they're never going to go for this, but what the hell? I mean, we're just, we're just spitballing. We're brainstorming. And, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they liked it. <laughs> they went for it. Um, and, um, then I, I had to start the research process and, um, that's, that's when Jeff came, you know, came into the picture and, um I, I forget how I think he had written to Marvel and you know, I forget how he sort of we became aware of him, but Jeff was incredibly kind and vetted the script and provided key details. Was one thing that I really, really wanted out uh, of the issue was I, I wanted it to feel real. Um I, I wanted it to be as grounded in the actual experiences of soldiers fighting in iraq as possible um and and having you know someone of, of jeff's expertise um and experience quite frankly um you know involved was was absolutely critical uh, uh you know for me um and um there there was also a, a book that was that loomed very large I, it was a book called clearing houses um which was basically about it, it, it was about a, a soldier's experience in iraq um, mainly focusing on the battle of fallujah but but it's a terrific book and it takes you through the entire, you know, the soldier's entire experience in war. And it, it, you know, um, Jeff and, and that book were, you know, not the only sources of, of information and research, uh, for the book, but but certainly the most influential. It's funny. I, you know, I'm very proud of the book. Um, And, and, uh, but for, for all of its, you know, uh, for, for all of its emotional resonance and realism, uh, I think one of the elements I'm most proud of is that I got a, uh, you know, a premature ejaculation joke in the book. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: um, but, uh, in canon. As in, I, I I know, again, it's like, I can't believe this. There's so many things, actually, in that issue that I, I look back on, and I'm amazed that they let me get away with. Um, you know, uh, you know, I actually, the funny thing is, I remember I really wanted an epic, I wanted to use an epigram. Um, you know, Billy, the last, I'm a big Billy Joel fan, the very, very last song he's written and recorded uh, was a song called Christmas in Fallujah, which um, it has a, a, a lyric, you know, um, there's no justice in the desert because there is no God in hell. And I wanted that to be the, the epigram. Um, and then for some legal reason, uh, like uh, legal came back and said, you can't, you know, you can't use a song lyric as an epigram. Um, and it was Steve's idea. Like, well, what if we know, what if, um, Peter had sent flash a Christmas gift? Uh, and it was an iPod with this, the song on it. Um, like, Ooh, that's a very clever way of getting the song in. Um, you know, and, uh, and the other thing I remember about the issue is that uh, it was it was Dan Slott who uh, suggested the title Flashbacks. Oh, great. Um, and he's like, this has to be the title. Like, it's obvious. <laughs> this has to be the title. And he was right.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's actually it's funny you say that about the, the premature ejaculation joke. It, the whole Brand New Day era, there was kind of an, a, like a PG-13 element to it. I mean, like Peter getting drunk and sleeping with Michelle. Or drunk, quote-unquote. Because yes, it, it was not actually alcohol. But... Um, yeah, it was a little. It was always kind of shocking. And rereading that yesterday, I was like, oh yes, that this is a really great joke in here um, about this. I think you know honestly,
0: th- this it, it, the funny thing is we didn't. I don't think we felt we were doing anything edgy at the time. We didn't feel like it was it was PG thirteen. I think that is more uh, a it's more a uh, indication of actually how uh, politically correct. You know, not even comic books, but culture, the American cult, pop culture has become since we did Brand New Day, which wasn't all that long ago, but things have really, really changed.
1: Yeah. So you followed this up with a really great se- sequence in your uh, Spider-Man Extra, where you had Peter and Flash like meeting at the airport. And, and uh, it's kind of a funny but kind of bittersweet moment, but it kind of showcases the resilience of Flash, and I always loved that, that moment.
0: Thank you, thank you. I mean, that was obviously... You know, once we, once we did the issue, it became equally obvious to us that at some point we've got to return Flash from the war, and and more importantly, we've got to see Peter, uh, you know, Peter's reaction, um, and Peter's discovery of what's happened to his friend. Um, and you know, those those amazing Spider-Man extras, they were I found them to be really useful, um, to be able to tell, you know, smaller, more intimate stories, sometimes stories that you know. We just didn't have, even with three times a month, uh, you know, we didn't have time for, um, you know, like, like the trial of Spider-Man, you know, that, that, uh, is part of character assassination, um, uh, just, you know, um, it, it was, you know, and, and, jackpot stories and we, we, we really, I, I really enjoyed having that outlet as, you know, a, a separate book to, do little footnotes like that
1: Well it's funny For three, a book being three times the month It was certainly oftentimes Four or five times a month Between Web of, Extra And in Spider-Man Family It's like You know it's Just a uh, mother You know Just mainlining Spider-Man
0: Yeah it just goes to show Like no matter what There's, there's a lot of Spider-Man To go around
1: Yeah So I guess your like Biggest story uh, uh, You know from your run I mean Flash is certainly A quiet single issue One shot but you did the conclusion to the Spider-Tracer story, which to me seems like the conclusion of the whole Brand New Day thing to a certain degree, or at least the first part of Brand New Day. What was it like finishing that up? Um, well, yeah, I'll tell you, you know, I think, I think
0: every time we, you know, would have a summit, we would sort of speak in terms of, like, okay, this chapter of Brand New Day, and we sort of tried to organize it where each chapter would lead into or climax with a really big arc. Um, and... Uh, I think just the wheel came around and and I ended up with the spider tracer arc. And, and, and truth be told, um, I'm, I'm not that, it's not that I'm not fond of it. I felt I dropped the ball with it. Hmm. I, I didn't, I felt like it started off strong and, um, you know, this is relatively early on in my comp career. And I, I wish I had, I feel like I, I didn't stick the landing as well as I could have. I, I, you know, I think early on in my comic book career, um, I didn't do a very good job of leaving enough enough issues, enough pages, really, um, for the climaxes. Um so they always in the writing they always felt rushed to me. Like hmm. I was like I was trying to cram in too much and things weren't allowed to breathe as much as, as I would have liked. Um that said, I, I got a chance to work with John Ramita Jr. Um which, you know, obviously crosses off a huge uh comic book writing bucket list item for me. Um
1: and John Romita Jr. on a Spider Man title. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Um you know, so um just uh the, you know, so that that alone was, was you know, really, really important to me, and I, I just, I there's elements of it that I, I enjoy and I'm, I'm proud of, and um, I hope you know at the end of the day, if if people like it, that's more important than whether or not I like it. I, um, I just, I wish, I don't know, I, I always look back at that uh, that arc as a, as a missed opportunity.
1: So, whose idea was it to have Harry Osborn standing with the shadow of the Goblin? You know, it's funny. I'm, I think
0: when I can't remember specifically, I'm always going to default to Dan because Dan was such this <laughs> font of ideas. I do remember we We broke out the whole character assassination story at, at one of the summits um and and there was a whole i mean there was a whole host of people you know Joe Casada was there you know tom Brevor, steve you know um you know the the brain trust uh you know there was there were a lot of uh you know a, a lot of ideas being thrown around um but uh you know that that you know we definitely you know knew that we wanted to tweak people uh with menace for sure
1: I specifically like Vin's story in in that particular series, and I think you you wrote a number of issues with Vin as a, as a main character, if not like the main character of of the comic. And he's kind of a unique character in Spider Man history because he's almost inher- like in, inherently unlikable, yeah. Uh, and yet, there's a lot of attention given his way as part of Spider Man's friend group. Uh,
0: I think we, I think, I think we all collectively, you know, really enjoyed writing Vin, um, in part because, uh, you know, again, it's an opportunity to add a new toy to the toy box. It's it's one thing to write Harry and to write, you know, when she came back in the book, Mary Jane and and May and and certainly Jonah, but um, to write a new character, um, that, that and a new male character, because that's the thing. It's like. The female characters, there's, there's always been, a, you know, a, a great number of female characters in in Peter's life, um, and a lot of them are romantic interests or or at least crush objects. Um, but like in terms of guys, like there's there's Harry and there's Flash, and you know, and Jonah is not a friend, um, so he doesn't <laughs> he really does not count. Um, so I think I think we all just you know. Gravitated towards Vin as oh this could this could be really really interesting like this is a type of type of character we we don't we we haven't seen in a long time in Spider Man
1: when you're doing a story like this one where there's all these different storylines converging and you know you, you've been writing you've been working on Arrow and and, and all the shows that you've done it, not to say that it's easy for you now but you must have like a method to kind of keep track of this and make sure these you know things. Whether or not you like it in this particular sure. story or not, what is the method for you that you use to kind of plot these character arcs and time them correctly? Do you, are you like a flashcard guy? Oh,
0: um, you know, it's a great question. Actually, I'm much more of a um, of a of a legal pad type of guy. Um, and then what I'll do is I, I like I like. It's not a legal pad, I guess it's a letter pad technically. It's, it's eight and a half by eleven pages and I'll I'll write things out and I'll chart things out and then scan that's scan those pages in. Um so that I always have, I always have them digitally, um because I always want them, you know, when I'm writing on my laptop. But um, you know, I, I think also again, like, you know, experience gives you new tricks and um you know, you also you you rely on that sort of hive mind. Uh, uh, quite frankly, of, of every, you know, like everyone's got their, uh, you know, their own memories of things and their own organizational systems. And, um, you sort of, I think when you're working with a, a large group like that, you, you rely on your partners and they rely on you and you all keep checking in with each other. Um, but, uh, it, there's no there's no magic trick to it i will say that like it's it's you know you wish like oh there's a perfect organizational principle if i just apply that principle uh everything will be nice and tidy and it never works out that way or at least it hasn't worked out for me that way yet
1: and lastly your your final 3 issue story is one from amazing spider-man 608 to 610 that returned the character of kane who we hadn't seen in almost a decade at least to my mind um i guess uh, my question for, for you would be what uh what is involved in bringing a character like that back and what was the thought about bringing someone like Kane back into the book especially now that he's going on to have Scarlet Spider and he's I become know. a huge character
0: uh, I know right uh well this was this was sort of my way of crossing off a bucket list item um I came into Brand New Day for whatever reason really wanting to revisit Ben Riley, um and uh for a variety of different reasons mainly other writers had sort of laid claim to a story with him. Um, I, I couldn't do Ben Reilly. And then at some point it occurred to me, but wait a minute, Kane is still out there. Somewhere. And, and <laughs> we haven't dealt with him. Um, and that could be very, very interesting. Um, but the, the real raison d'etre of the story was, um, it, it really went back to my earlier uh, desire to, to do something ben riley related um and i had this notion of wait a second you know for all these years uh there had been this guy with peter parker's face <laughs> going around living his own life what if something happened where someone blamed ben riley for something and then lo and behold sees peter parker on the news or you know and goes wait a minute that guy is Ben Riley. With a, you know, what what if Peter was was targeted by someone who actually was trying to get revenge on Ben Riley for something? Uh, that that struck me as as really really interesting. Um, and then I forget. I think it was it was one of the other writers had suggested that that Kane you know, maybe there's a way to work Cain into the story somehow because, again, Ben not being available, but certainly swimming in those waters and certainly acknowledging those years, um, those lost years as they were, um, there would be some, some interesting parallel to be had there. Um, so that's sort of how that story came about. And, I, and then I had suggested the notion of... Uh, you know of of sort of telling the story in two time periods um, uh, of telling a present day story with Peter and a flashback story uh, with ben um, and and again that was i guess my my way of of working a loophole uh, the the flashback loophole in order to get a chance to write ben i don 't know why I was so interested in writing ben i think I think in part it was ever since the clone saga, there had been a little bit of a denial of the whole storyline, which I understand. I understand like it grew beyond, I think anyone's control or anyone's initial desire. Um, And, uh, you know, it it was, I think correctly sort of denied for a while, just so that the book itself could move on. But by the time brand new day came around, I felt like it had been denied for so long. um, it, you know, it should be it should be acknowledged in some way, and it should be given its due. I think that's probably why I was so intent on doing some Ben Riley related story, um, and and it sort of became the, the that that final arc.
1: Well, I, w- I want to finish with a question that I ask everybody that comes okay. on the show, and um, I guess what does it mean to you personally that you were part of a team, or even just that you were a writer that brought the character of Spider-Man to life, that you're part of this, uh, I don't know, I want to say ethos, but this canon of this new godly, you know, creation.
0: (laughs) You know, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm very, very fortunate in the sense that I get to have a career that, allows me to do the types of things that I didn't even dare to dream about doing as a child. Um, and that the the 10-year-old boy in me um, would not believe. Like, if, if I could travel back in time and say to my 10-year-old self, hey, guess what I'm going to get a chance to do? Um, or well, guess what you're going to get a chance to do? Uh, I, w- I wouldn't believe it, you know? Um, and... I, I think, you know, it's funny. I think in many ways that's why, like, I look back on character assassination and, um, and uh, you know, go, oh, I wish I had stuck the landing better because it's it's Spider-Man. And, you know, I, I think I'm very... I'm probably more critical of, of my the work I did on Spider-Man than on any comic work I've done um, because it's Spider-Man. You know, because when you're doing Spider-Man, like, it, it's that has to be your absolute best work. Um, and, um, I'm very, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm very self-critical about it. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, I totally, it's not just self-flagellation. It's, it's just appreciating and valuing the experience of getting a chance to write Spider-Man. And and truth be told, like if, if I didn't get a chance to write any Spider-Man issue except for 574 with Flash, i'd be you know i'd be very satisfied um so i'm incredibly incredibly lucky and um i'm also very lucky like i was you know i was writing spider-man uh for uh issue issues five and six of agents of shield which is this comic i'm writing for marvel right now i somehow managed to work in a shameless plug for uh my current series um and it was like oh Spidey, I love writing Spidey. I mean I just love writing Spidey. I mean there's probably not a single character who's more um uh, who, who's who's a better fit for my voice as a writer than than Spider-Man.
1: Great. So, uh, you know, outside of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where can our listeners find you, I guess, on the internet, or find what work of yours is coming up in the future?
0: Um, I, I'm very active on posting to Twitter, uh, so that's, that's always the place I, I uh, encourage people to check me out. Um, so that's at M. Guggenheim. Uh, M-G-U-G-G-E-N-H-E-I-M.
1: Great. And any, any work coming out we should keep our eyes up, open for? Uh,
0: well, definitely Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, that's the only comic book work I have, uh, in the pipeline. I've, I'm currently at work on season five of Arrow, uh, on the CW and season two of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, also
1: on the CW. Congratulations on ending season four of Arrow. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It's, it's, uh, it's, it's always, look, whenever you can end a season of television that's 23 episodes it's like okay i conquered a a really big mountain um and then you know two weeks later you you get right back up (laughs) you start climbing the mountain from the bottom again
1: well thanks so much for joining us on the show today No,
0: thank you this was a lot of fun it was great to be able to to think about uh, things i haven't thought about in a while great
1: spider-man and his amazing friend. I wanted to thank Mark Guggenheim again for being so generous with his time and honest about his work on The Amazing Spider-Man. I know he really helped me fill out my understanding of how the Spider-Man brain trust worked. Most of all, he was just the nicest guy. So if you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to thank him on Twitter or in person for coming on the show. So as for all of our other amazing episodes and interviews, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and old Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play by searching Amazing Spider Talk. And if you do, please be sure to leave us a comment or a review. Also, Please be sure to check out The Ultimate Spin, our brother podcast that covers the stories of Miles Morales and Spider-Gwen. Brian was awesome enough to appear on our previous episode, so if you liked hearing his sultry voice, you'll get a lot more of that over there. Also, don't forget to check out our friendly neighborhood Spider-Talk Members Club so you can access our full library of members-only episodes and get some amazing rewards. Mark will be back next week to join me in a discussion of Amazing Spider-Man number 14 by Dan Slott, Christos Gage, and Giuseppe Comicoli. I know I like the book a good deal more than I like issue number 13, so I'm anticipating a fun discussion with Mark. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk and read all of my writing at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. So until next week, this is me reminding you that with great podcasts must also come Amazing Spider Talk. Don't,
0: don't miss the next-